most of us don't just want to read our Bible. We want to enjoy it. We want to understand it. This is the Bible Field Guide podcast. We make the Bible make sense. On today's episode, we'll discuss a hotly debated topic in contemporary biblical studies. Who wrote the Torah? Why does authorship matter? I mean, does it really matter if we know who wrote something? As long as we have the thing, do we need to know who wrote it? Well, I want you to imagine for a second that you see a headline on an article, and this is the headline, Why America Should Adopt Universal Free Healthcare. Now, let's say that you see the person who wrote this article is Rachel Maddow. Well, what would you assume the article is doing? Well, obviously, it's actually arguing for universal free health care. But let's imagine for a second that you saw the author was Glenn Beck. Well, then you'd assume that the article was doing something radically different. It's probably satire. It's probably mocking the idea. The author tells us something about the meaning of a text. And the author, I think, also tells us something about the audience. Because it's a simple fact. Uh, Liberals tend to write for liberals and be read by liberals. And conservatives tend to write for conservatives and be read by conservatives. So who wrote the Torah? The answer to that question can not only help us understand what the Torah is saying, but it can also tell us something about the Torah's audience, who it was being written to. So to answer the question, who wrote the Torah, let's just go to the Torah itself. And we need to start here. There is no byline in any of the five books of the Torah. But there are multiple parts which clearly describe Moses writing down history or laws for posterity. And so this tells us that some, if not much, of the material in in the Torah must have actually originally been Mosaic. In fact, the final book of the Torah, Deuteronomy, it's a transcription of Moses' last sermons. That said, however, there's actually a couple parts of the Torah which it's clear Moses did not write. So Deuteronomy 34, it's a retrospective account of Moses' death. Moses can't retrospectively write about his own death. Elsewhere, Moses is described by the narrator as the most humble man who ever lived. Now, if Moses is the narrator of this section, if he's the one who wrote that, well, you can't be the most humble guy who ever lived. You can't call yourself the most humble person who ever lived and be the most humble person who ever lived. In the book of Numbers, the narrator actually names a source for the information that he's sharing, but he doesn't name Moses as the source. He names the book of the wars of Yahweh. Now, I'm bringing all these up because I think we need to be honest. The text could not be more clear that Moses is not the sole author of the whole Torah. The text is being very clear and it's being very self-conscious about the fact Okay, so so what do people say today? Uh, If you asked a scholar today who wrote the Torah, how would they answer? Well, many people would hold to a more traditional view. They would say Moses is the author of the Torah. But from the mid-19th to 20th century, a new theory began to develop. And this theory was called the documentary hypothesis. Okay, so here's how this theory works. In this view, there are four different traditions by at least four different authors or maybe even communities, which were then woven together into the final form of the Torah. And they came to this conclusion, scholars did, because it seemed as though certain stories were repeated side by side, with slight little differences. They said, well, these must be two different sources. 
They also noticed what seemed to be radically different interests set side by side. You'd have a story right alongside a a ritual or a legal text. It's kind of like someone went through and they quilted all of these different distinct fabrics into a single whole. Now, until the 1970s, this theory dominated biblical studies and the academy. But around then, consensus began to break down. Okay, so let's talk about what happened. Well, despite the fact that everyone agreed that the Torah was a collage of different sources quilted into a whole, no one could precisely agree on how many, how many different sources were there. And even when they could agree on the number of sources, they couldn't agree on which source wrote which part. Okay, so so let me try to illustrate what happened. Uh, Scientists agree that our universe began with a big bang. But let's imagine that they couldn't come to any consensus on what precipitated or followed that explosion. They all go, oh yeah, there was a big bang, but precisely what the big bang is and what it caused, well, that would be a matter of personal definition according to each scientist. If that was the case, well, I think it would call the entire theory of the big bang into question, wouldn't it, right? If we can't agree on what happened before it or what happened after it, then maybe we need to question the theory itself. If they all use the same methodology to get their solutions, we might even go a step further and we might say, hey, your varying results are showing that your methodology, the way you're trying to come to these answers, there's something wrong with it. If you can use the exact same methodology and come up with different answers, there's something wrong with the method. This is exactly what's happened with the documentary hypothesis. We've used the same method, and yet we've come up with wildly different answers. And while everyone can agree, oh, there must be multiple sources, no one can agree on what that means. Even worse, the claims of the documentary hypothesis are built on largely unprovable assumptions. Again, I just want to give you a few examples. This hypothesis, it assumes that over time, religion goes from being free and ecstatic to being more rigid and ritualistic. Moreover, a lot of the claims in the documentary hypothesis are built on unprovable assumptions. For example, there was a built-in assumption that that free form religion, that it, it was kind of the earlier form, and that eventually that earlier, free, more ecstatic form of religion becomes more ritualistic and rigid. And as a result of this assumption, people who were trying to figure out where are these sources from, they would assume that the stories, which seem to describe a more free form religion, were earlier, they were written earlier than the more ritualistic parts of the Torah. The simple fact, however, is that we don't know. We don't seem to know for sure that free form always leads to ritual religion. In fact, in contemporary circles, we've seen the opposite happen. We move from Catholicism, a more ritualistic form of religion, to Protestantism. We moved from mainline denominations to charismatic movements and home churches. The simple fact is that the logic of the documentary hypothesis is circular, and it's built on unverifiable assertions. Unfortunately, many scholars, despite knowing that, yeah, this doesn't quite make sense, they still use the documentary hypothesis as a heuristic. In other words, despite knowing that the findings and methodologies of the documentary hypothesis are highly dubious, They still use some of the same categories which it created to interpret the Bible. Personally, I find this very unhelpful. In more recent years, uh, new studies have actually helped us to learn a little bit more about the authorship of the Torah. 
So first, we've come to learn that the pattern of repeating stories, and you'll notice in in the Torah, stories are repeated. Uh, The pattern of repeating stories in different ways is not unique to the Torah. Uh, For example, there are inscriptions, these are things written into stone, which are side by side, and they'll describe one event. On one side, there's a poetic description of the event. On the other side, there's a narrative description. Now, here's what's interesting. The events told side by side may vary significantly in each telling. The details may vary. The order of events may vary. And so we're learning that this uh, method of putting stories side by side with slight variants is part of how people communicated history in the ancient world. Secondly, we're coming to learn a lot more about oral tradition in the ancient world. It seems quite likely that actually a lot of the parts of the Torah were based on oral tradition. Now, in the past, we've assumed that that meant that they were passed down by a massive game of telephone, which inevitably, over time, changes and erodes the stories. However, here's what's really interesting. Studies from the modern Middle East have shown that in communities where oral history is common, so where they're actually doing this oral tradition thing, a very different pattern is followed. Roland DeVal, he studied modern Bedouin tribes. This is actually very close to the region of Israel. And this is what he writes. He says, nomadic and semi-nomadic Arabs still relate in their tents the traditions, genealogies, and the stories of their tribes and families. Both adults and children hear the same stories again and again and again. And whenever the narrator omits or adds something, they, the community, correct him at once. So it seems quite likely that oral stories were transcribed into the Torah, but they weren't transcribed via a telephone game. Chances are these communities helped keep the stories the same over the years by correcting each other when details were added or omitted. Okay, so when we take all of this together, we can draw a few conclusions about the authorship of the Torah. First of all, the Torah doesn't give us an explicit author. Secondly, the Torah does say that at least some parts of it seem to be composed by Moses. In fact, perhaps large parts of it seem to be composed by Moses. Third, it seems quite likely from what we know of the ancient world that stories were passed down orally and that some of these stories were incorporated into the Torah. Fourth, if we have all of these different parts, it tells us that there has to be someone down the line who puts them all together. We can't know for certain whether there was one editor at one time or many editors over many times. We also can't know for certain whether that editor added in his own original content, which leads me to this conclusion. We don't know exactly who wrote the Torah, but we can say with some confidence that it was perhaps largely written by Moses, supplemented by oral history, collected, and then composed into its final form by one or maybe more editors. Now, obviously, this is complex, which probably explains why the easiest way to describe these books was simply by calling them by their most substantial author, Moses. I think this is what Jesus was doing whenever he ascribed these books to Moses. He wasn't saying that Moses was the sole author. Again, he read these books. He saw that in the book of Numbers, it attributed parts to authors who were different than Moses. Jesus knew all that. When he says that Moses wrote these books, he's saying that Moses is the main author, but not the sole author. It would have just been a colloquial way of saying, yeah, those are the books of Moses, mainly his work. Now, for some, I think this brings up a whole different question, which is this. How can a book with multiple authors 
still be inspired by God? Well, on one level, I think this is kind of a funny question because God has always chosen to speak through humans using their own personal literary talent, voice, language, and style. If that's how God has always written the Bible, well, then it tells us that every book of the Bible has multiple authors, God and the human writing it. But I think this is also an interesting question. Can a book with multiple authors be inspired by God? I think this is interesting for a different reason, because I think it's rooted in 19th century British romantic assumptions about how creativity works. You see, the great romantic poets of England, they believed in the idea that uh, there was something called a creative genius. And the creative genius was this singular figure who was inspired by his or her own genius to write extraordinary works with extraordinary power. Now, this was always imagined as a solitary act. And it was always thought that it was somehow weakened or cheapened if anybody else had any influence. It was the individual who could create great works. Now, let's just state the obvious. The creative genius is a fiction. We all create in community. But it's interesting because for whatever reason, this became our model of how God works and in inspiration. God is the genius inspiring the creative writer. And any external input, any communal input somehow cheapens or jeopardizes the enterprise. I think this is not only problematic and naive, but it also limits God's power acting in history. I mean, why can't God inspire authors and editors over time to compose his word? Why is that a problem? Someone may try to beg the question, at what point in the history of composition does a book become inspired? But again, I think that's kind of a silly question. Were the works of Isaiah only inspired once they were situated into their final compositional form in the book of Isaiah? Well, no, they were inspired the minute God spoke through Isaiah. And the fact that God speaks through humans is a far greater mystery than the fact that he's done it through multiple people and communities over time. This became God's inspired word when God spoke through people in the first instance, and it remains God's inspired word in its collected final literary form. The Torah has to be read in that broader context. The broader context of multiple authors over time working together with the words of Moses. The Torah gives us the words of Moses, which Moses used to shape the people that Moses led to prepare them to enter into the promised land. But it also gives us the words of Israel's oral tradition, which shaped the generations before and after Moses. And it finally gives us the words and compositional values of later editors who are organizing Moses' words and oral history to speak fresh life into their situations and their own days. What does the Torah mean for my life under the monarchy? What does the Torah mean for my life in exile? What does it mean in our lives upon our return? These are the questions that breathe life into the Torah, and I think that they in turn allow the Torah to breathe life into us. Thanks for listening to Bible Field Guide. Please subscribe and give us a rating if you like this content. It helps other people find our podcast. If you don't already follow us on Instagram, just search for Bible Field Guide or click the link in the show notes. Or you can go to our website, biblefieldguides.com, to browse what we've created so far. 
We're still in the very early stages of the project. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, this is kind of our our first real jaunt into the Bible. So there's not a lot out there yet, but we've got a lot, lot, lot more planned. So if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas, or musings, you can go onto our website, email us there. Please reach out. We'd love to hear from you.